the most fascinating shifts um, that we've seen in society over the last maybe 20 years or so is surely the rise of what we call sort of celebrity culture, isn't it? Uh, where maybe 100 years ago it would have been politicians, maybe 50 years ago it would have been actors, today it is the fashion bloggers and it is the uh, pop singers or it is the the TV personalities that kind of hold sway and influence much of modern culture, isn't it? Now, look at us. We're far too cool and we're far too switched on to be influenced by any of that, aren't we? But it does kind of raise a question, doesn't it? What is it that does influence our lives? Like, what is it that does kind of guide our behavior, guide our thinking, guide our decisions? Who is it that we do look to for advice? Who does it, who do we look to for leadership in our lives? Well, as we turn to this, the first uh, part of Zechariah chapter 10, it's these very issues that confront us. As Zechariah sort of stands up and he, you know, he brings God's word to the people of Jerusalem, it is matters of influence, and it is matters of leadership that are, that are uppermost in his mind. And really, surely as we study these verses, we all as Christians in here have the same hope and desire. Isn't that the case? Tonight we all hope that as we consider leadership, we consider influence, that what God might do in here on our Sunday night, through his word, is to give us a picture of our leader. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we desire? A, a picture of our Messiah, our Christ, our Savior. So friends, I, I would ask you to please um, turn to Zechariah chapter 10, to have that there in front of you. It's only verses 1 to 5 that we're considering tonight. Let's consider, first of all, the antithesis of God's new leader. The antithesis of God's new leader. Okay, now, what we find in Zechariah chapter 10 is actually something really quite surprising and remarkable. Now, if, if, if we've seen anything over the last couple of months when we've been looking at the book of Zechariah, we've seen that God has been very, very gracious to those people, hasn't he? I mean, think about what, I mean, what an incredible amount of grace he's shown. He has done what? He's rescued those people from exile. What else has he done? He's taken them back to the promised land and helped them rebuild the city, hasn't he? We've seen an amazing amount of grace, an incredible amount of grace. And despite that, what are we dealing with here? Despite all of that goodness from God, we read here that the people of God in Jerusalem are slipping back into idolatry. Can you believe that? All the grace that God has shown them. And what we're reading here, they're involved in pagan practice. Now, what the text does here, what God does, is he gives us a couple of descriptions of what that kind of idolatry and those pagan practices were. So I want you to look at that with me. So just look at the first of those in verse 2. You see what it says? The NIV says this. It says, the, the, the idols speak deceit. 
Now, um, the Hebrew word for idol there is is teraphim. Yisdis, little statuettes, little figurines that people used to have in their houses. You know these little sort of these kind of statues they would have. They would go to this and and worship them or go to these things for wisdom. You know that story of um, of Rachel in in Genesis and she steals something from from Laban. What does she steal? She stole one of these little statuettes. Now, what we've got to realize is that these kind of statues were incredibly popular in the Persian Empire. So do you see what that means? It means that all of these sort of pagan people that are living around the people of God in Jerusalem they would have these things in their houses. So do you see what's going on here? Our people, the, the people of God, they're trying to fit in. Is that what's happening? By them having these little figurines, these, these ter- ter- teraphim, they are now looking to what society looked to for advice and for wisdom. So, so you, you, you've got that. But then there's the second thing. Just look at the next line. Can you do that? So the idols speak deceit, uh, diviners uh, see visions that lie. Now these guys, the diviners, from a biblical point of view, kind of, what would you say, unsavory characters, weren't they? You know that unpleasant guy, Balaam in the Old Testament? These diviners, they, these were guys that claimed to be wise about the future. In fact, more than that, they actually claimed to be able to see into the future. And so people would come to them for advice, come to them for a bit of guidance about the, the road ahead. Now that's your, that's your picture of the idolatry. Well, the people of God were involved in here. But did you notice what God says about these things? What does he say? He says they are hateful. And he says these things are absolutely meaningless. They're lies that... Yes, okay, they seem to provide some sort of comfort. But what does he say? It's fake. It's, it's false comfort. And what does God promise for these diviners themselves? He promises to punish them. Why? They are leading his people, maybe. But they are, they are leading these people astray. Now, what's the application? What do we do with this in here tonight? What do we do with this? I suppose, in some ways, there's a kind of, there's a really obvious application, isn't there? Do you not think so? Like, like what is this stuff? Little statuettes and divine, what is all this? If you were to describe it, what would you say it was? Superstition. Hey, isn't this stuff just superstitious nonsense? Do you see the application? We are the people of God, and we do not do superstition. Do you hear me? We are the people of God. That means that in here, London City Presbyterian Church, we do not touch in any way any sort of Eastern mysticism or any sort of New Age mysticism. We do not touch, we do not look at, we do not involve ourselves in any way in any ungodly philosophy, no matter how harmless it may seem, no matter how beneficial or how helpful it may seem, we will touch it. But there's maybe also a 
a more subtle application here as well, isn't there? See, when you think about this stuff, these terpenes, these, these, these uh, decompliners, what is this stuff? Like, what, what are the people doing here? Aren't they transplanting the role that God should have played in the leadership of their life? I mean, isn't that what's, what's going on here? They are allowing themselves to be influenced. More than that, they are allowing themselves to be led, not by God, but by the world. And I think if we break it down like that, wait a minute, we do it. Isn't that true? We do it. Isn't it true that we have the terrapine in our life? Isn't that especially the case for maybe the younger people that are here tonight? Don't we have the terrapine in our life? Isn't it the case that sometimes we are just so keen to fit in with the society around us? What do we do? We, we allow ourselves to be led. We allow ourselves to be influenced by worldly values. Don't we do that all the time? Now, isn't it the case that we also have diviners as well in our own life? People that we look to for, for advice and guidance. And I don't mean just, you know, a, a nice helpful word here and there, but, but people we allow to influence, influence us in a way that we should only be reserving for the Lord our God. I mean, we look at this. We look at Zechariah chapter 10 and we think, how could those people do that? God has delivered them. And now look at this idolatry. Do you see what it is? It's a mirror. This is you. This is me. We do this. But friends, I wonder, do you see in the text what it is that God wants from you? Did you notice it? Look at verse 1. God says, he prefaces all of this, and he says, ask the Lord for rain. Do you see the message? God wants his people not to look to idols, he wants his people not to look to the world. He wants his people to look to him for all the guidance, for all the wisdom, for everything that we need. So we see the antithesis of God's new leader. There's a second thing I want us to consider here as well. Consider also the announcement of God's new leader. I know it's late on your Sunday night. But I, I, I hope you're with me as well. You see what's happening here. That God is rebuking his people for following leaders that really are no leaders at all. I'll tell you this. What God would want to do next is beautiful. It's beautiful. Because into that leadership vacuum in the community of faith, do you know what he does? He promises to install his own leader. Do you see that? Look at verse 3. The Lord Almighty. Oh there's, there's this leadership vacuum. What does he say? The Lord Almighty will care for his flock. So there's, not, there's no shepherd for his people. And they're lost. And God says, I will provide. I'm going to provide a shepherd. Now, here's the thing. I, I hope... Uh, I hope you see that what we are about to look at in Scripture is exciting. Do you see why it's exciting? Do you see why it would be exciting? Here, God is not just promising another leader. Before the people of Jerusalem, he promises them a Christ 
He promises them the Messiah. So do you see why it's exciting? In here, right now, tonight, on this Sunday night, God, by his word, is going to show his people more about their saviour. We learn here more about Jesus. That's why it's exciting. So wait a minute. What have we got? What are we told by God here? Look at verse 4. The first thing in verse 4 is that this Christ, this Messiah, is called a cornerstone. Now, we've heard that before, haven't we? Like if, if you're wanting to rebrand a church in the 21st century, if you want to plant a church in the 21st century, remember what we said before, you're either going to call it Hope Church, or you're going to call it Grace Church, or you're going to call it Cornerstone Church. Now, these are good names, good names. But what does it mean that Christ is a cornerstone? Well, we've got to be careful. We don't make a mistake here. Because earlier on in Zechariah, do you remember? Do you remember that earlier on, Christ was referred to as a capstone? Now, that is different. Do you remember Christ as a capstone? What was the capstone? It was the final piece of the jigsaw, wasn't it? It was the, the last stone raised high onto God's temple. But this is different. This is the cornerstone. Do you see what that is? It's the first stone. It is the foundational stone. The stone that not only sets the temple, but the stone that takes all the stress and all the pressure of the entire structure. So do you see what God is saying here? He is promising a mighty leader. A leader like no one had ever seen before. One who was going to come with such strength such power that he would be able to support the entire community of faith. He is our cornerstone. But wait a minute, what else? Look at this. What else have we got here? Look at verse 4. The Christ is a cornerstone. What else is he? <laughs> He's a tent peg. Reading this this week. In preparation to preach, oh, I was scratching my head when I got to this. I, I confess, you know, Christ is a tent peg. And I was, uh, I, I just couldn't shake these sort of nightmarish uh, memories of me in the sort of west coast of Scotland camping and uh, sort of battling midges and battling the elements and trying to get tent pegs into the, the ground, you know? Christ is a tent peg. Is that the sort of thing that you think of? Lose it. Because that is not what this word means. See, this word is used elsewhere. It's used in Isaiah chapter 22 of David's son, Eliakim. See, there, Eliakim's reign is compared with a peg. A peg that is hammered hard and deep into a wall. Do you see what, what God is saying here about this new leader? He's saying he's going to be entirely different to these diviners, to these teraphim. He's going to be different. He is going to be trustworthy because his reign is going to be faithful. His reign is going to be long-lasting. This new leader's reign is going to be eternal. So we have a cornerstone, we have a tent peg. And you see the, the last of these, don't you? He will be a battle bow. Now, as soon as I say that Christ is a battle bow, it's familiar, isn't it? You 
um, all the way through the book of Zechariah, you've seen this, that there's a lot of warfare imagery, isn't there, Zechariah? What does it mean that this leader is a battle bull? Well, surely it means that this leader that God is promising here was going to be a military leader, not like those divine He was going to be one of substance. That he was going to be a ruler who was going to come and wage war, destroy his enemies and provide not that fake comfort, but to provide something lasting, something real. He would provide true peace. Now, I said at the, at the start of this point, I said, you know, this is exciting. It's exciting. But I wonder, is it like really for us tonight, is it exciting? You know, as, as God shows us this picture of the Christ, are we excited? Are we? I mean, our, is our affection, is our, is our hearts lifted heavenward as we consider the nature of Jesus? I mean, does it excite you that, that this is your leader? That he is one who's, who is strong and he's able to support your needs? Is it, is it exciting for you that, that, that he is reliable with this eternal faith? Doesn't it excite you that he is a military leader? That he has taken his battle bow and gone where with it? That this is a leader who has gone up to Jerusalem to wage war. One who has gone to the cross to wage war. A military leader who has fought sin for you. More than that, a military leader who has defeated sin for us and for you. That we might live, is it not exciting? If it is, do you see here what you must do? Friends, God here in Zechariah 10, he gives you tonight your leader. He shows you a picture of your leader and he says to you tonight, follow him. Follow him in everything that you are, in everything that you do this week, in everything you think. You follow this leader, this Christ. But I wonder, do you? I mean, in the very sort of practical things of our lives, are we, are we not just too influenced by modern culture? Are we, even the people of God, not just too affected by the practices and the values of those who, who just simply don't love Jesus Christ? Friends, here in Zechariah 10, despite all of their idolatry, God provides a shepherd leader. We should listen to his voice and we should follow him. So we see the antithesis of God's new leader. We see an announcement of God's new leader. And we'll end with the accomplishments of God's new leader. One of the uh, great criticisms, whether it's valid or not, you can decide, but one of the great criticisms of uh, British generals in World War II uh, was that, okay, they trained their armies and they equipped their armies but unlike the sort of military leaders of, of old they never led their armies into battle you know they, they some of them certainly 
when the battle was raging, they were found in the safety miles behind uh, the front line. We see no such cowardice from our leader, this messianic leader in Zechariah chapter 10. I want you to understand this. We see here not only the fact that he equips his people, but he also leads them to victory. He equips them and he leads them to victory. So look at the equipping. Now, think about, if you would, the imagery of this section. Like there's only you know, five, six verses here. But did you see how it is that we are referred to all the way through? What's the imagery? We're a flock, aren't we? Like time and time again, you know, there's a shepherd or there's sheep. And as one commentator points out here, that's maybe not the most flattering imagery, is it? We are sheep. <laughs> we are maybe not the brightest creatures in the world. We are sheep. Quoted going astray. We are sheep. We've got self-destructive tendencies. We are sheep in desperate need of a shepherd. Do you see it? Maybe not that flattering. But did you notice how the imagery is transformed? Here we see his great leader come in and he equips his people. And look at this in verse 3. What do they become? A proud horse. We worship he equips us. We are now a majestic steed. And that is just extended in verse 5. It's wonderful. We were sheep. We are equipped. And now we become mighty men. Now that is a technical term for a band of elite warriors. That is equipping. And then note the victory. The section ends here with the total and utter destruction of our enemies. So powerful do the people become that they, what does it say? They trample their, their foes in the mud. How do we do that? Look at verse 5. Because the Lord is with them. That the Christ, the Messiah, he goes into battle for them, with them. And I love it. And this enthralling, most thrilling imagery. But what has it got to do with us tonight? Guys, did you, did you come into this church tonight asking, why, God? Did you come in and say, why are, why are these things happening? Why are the circumstances of my life like they are? Well, friends, do you not see here even part of an answer to this? Your leader is taking the miseries and the circumstances of your life, and what is he doing? He is equipping for what? For your fight against sin. He is building you up. That's what your life is about just now. Your leader, your military leader, equipping you, strengthening you so that you will be able to fight your sin, the wickedness of your life. Look at me at the front here and you say, what? No way. The sin of my life just now is so great. If that guy up there, if he knew what I was doing or what I was thinking, there's, there's no way that he would say this. He would know that my sin cannot be broken. And I see here it can. It can. Do you see why? Because your leader rides ahead. He goes into battle 
with you. Tomorrow morning, you get up, you go into your week, and what happens? Your Messiah, your Christ, by his Holy Spirit, he rides in with you. He goes ahead of you on his white steed with his battle bow in hand. And in Christ, there is victory. That in Christ, you can overcome. So I want to end tonight just with this challenge. As you examine your life tonight, ask yourself this. Who is it that you are really following? I mean that even as a Christian. Who are you really following in the practical things of your life? Who is influencing you? Who is leading you? Is it the the things of this world? Is it your your friends? Is it the the culture? Is it worldly values? Do you not see tonight from Zechariah 10? That's nonsense. We must, by greater devotion and by greater prayer, we must follow Jesus. Because ultimately, look, where is our leader leading us? Where is he taking us? He is taking us to glory. This shepherd leader, the one who has laid down his life for his sheep, the one who has called his sheep by his very voice, where is he taking us? Where is he leading us? He's leading us beside still waters. He's leading us, our shepherd leader, he's leading us to pastures green. His endless mercies that will follow us his goodness, yes, his goodness will lead us.